Uh, if you would, please get your notes out and your Bibles if you'd like. We've made it to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, these notes is in this uh, Torah portion called Lech Lecha, which means to go for yourself. And this is where uh, a, uh, Abram is called out by God to leave the land of his fathers and his family and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and he's going to go um, out. He's going to journey out. And God says, you're going to go somewhere where I'm going to uh, send you. And so this is what we're going to be looking at tonight. And uh, I pray that uh, our Heavenly Father would honor the reading of His Word. Amen. And uh, while we're doing that, because I didn't do it a while ago, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Hope you've had and are still having a good Sabbath and that uh, God is blessing you with His presence and it's just good to see you. All right, so let's look at this. I've got the uh, outline there for you <clears throat> at the top. Once again, uh, I'm copying that out of this series of books called Walk, and this one is uh, Genesis, obviously. Uh, but you go down to the middle of the page there and it starts in uh, Genesis chapter 12. And tonight we're going to do something a, a little bit different because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on passages outside of this section uh, because as we march through this section, and yes, it is a lot. There's, you know, at least five, six chapters here. It's Genesis 12, 1 through 17, 27. We will skip a little bit here, <clears throat> but we're going to study the Bible and read it in what? We're going to read it in context. And when we do this, it's going to be amazing uh, how that I hope you'll start to see some things uh, that I believe is fascinating. And I know I say that every week, right? But the Bible really is fascinating. Uh, and we'll see how God um, is just, he keeps telling us over and over and over again uh, exactly what is going to happen and what will happen and what did happen. So watch what he does here with Abram. <clears throat> now, I want to remind you, because we're going to study this in context, that this we've, we've had uh, the flood, uh, we've had with Noah, which we just looked at, we've had the Tower of Babel event and how God separated all the peoples and these nations according to the number of the sons of God. We looked at all that. And so it's right after that event <clears throat> that we have this story where God goes, okay, now I've got Abram. I'm going to call Abram out. And so this is what happens now picking up here in chapter 12. Uh, in chapters 10 and 11 is where you have the list of all the generations uh, of the people where you get this idea of these table of nations. So we're going to pick up here in Genesis 12, starting with verse 1. It says, And Yahovah said to Abram, Go yourself out of your land from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I show you. And I shall make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I shall bless those that bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you all the clans or nations or tribes of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham left as Jehovah commanded him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Let us stop for a second. So... <clears throat> Abram is 75 years old. I hadn't made it there yet. I know I might look it, but I haven't made it there yet. Uh, he's 75. Um, God shows up and he says, 
I want you to get yourself up and get out. I want you to leave your land, leave your relatives, leave your family, leave your father's house, and you're going to go someplace that, by the way, I'm going to show you. Doesn't tell him where. This is the first time we have in Scripture where there's a journey, if you will, or an exodus or whatever without a specific designated place or without somebody being exiled, like Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden. Uh, at Babel, you got people that are forcibly scattered when God uh, confused their language and everything. And now God is calling out one man, Abram, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to go someplace, uh, but I'm not going to tell you just yet. It says here that Abram just gets up and he goes. I want you to look at what it says. It says, you're going to get out of your land your relatives, and your father's house. God has something very special for Abram. We know, because we're able to read through, I want you to try to put yourself in Abram's shoes for a second. He's 75. That's a lifetime, right? A lifetime growing up where he grew up. I mean, I grew up where Eastfield College is. I'm not far from home. Sonia's not far from home. We grew up in Shiloh Terrace Baptist Church on the corner of Oates and La Prada, where we met. Um, we're not far from home. <clears throat> so you could say, yes, we have roots in this area. Um, here, God says to Abram, look, I've got something, and, and I want you to get up, and I want you to leave. You're going to leave your land you're going to leave your family, you're going to leave your father's house, and you're going to go to a place, and I'm going to show you. Folks, I have yet to see a time when God has chosen to use somebody, and He leaves us where we are. I've yet to really see it in Scripture. He always is calling us out and calling us to change and calling us to leave what we had before and focus on following him. This is what he's called Abram to do, to leave his land, his relatives, and his father's house. He's got to get Abram out to where it's just him and God. Um, he's got to get him out of the cities. He's got to get him out away from everything else that's man-made. <clears throat> he's got to get him out alone. It's almost the opposite of what he did with David. David was out alone and grew up alone, and God met with him, and then God anoints him as king, and then through that event, God calls him into Jerusalem, if you will, to literally govern the whole nation of Israel. Here, he's calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's that um, northeastern part of the area uh, above Israel, if you will, where he calls him out of that area, uh, and he travels down. He ends up uh, down in what is now Israel, uh, and he's now going to make a nation out of him. <clears throat> so he says, and this is something else that I want you to notice. And by the way, if you don't, I give you these so that you can write it up in case you don't like to write in your Bible, but I would tell you even do that. It's your guidebook, right? But I want you to notice a few things in here. 
This is when God calls Abram. If we're going to study our Bible and read it in context, that means we need to remember what happens when, right? So we don't yank verses out of context and then come up with some kind of weird doctrine because we're not reading it in context. So this is, a, this is from the very moment God calls Abram out. And he's already making a promise. Abram hasn't done anything yet. That's what I want you to see. So it says, you're going to get up. You're going to leave your relatives, your father's house, the land I'm going to show you. And I shall make you a great nation. He's saying, this is what you're going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. So he says, listen, Abram, I want you to get up and go. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And then watch this. And you're going to be a blessing. Now, this is going to become extremely important as we march through this because I want you to see God's commitment to Abraham and how this relates to, uh, if you will, our understanding of the law. It's absolutely fascinating. It's also fascinating how this whole story is a picture of what is about to happen. It's a mirror picture of the Exodus. Watch what happens. It says, so Abraham left as Yahweh commanded him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Let's continue on. Look, jump down to verse 7. And he says, and Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your seed I give this land. And he built an altar to Yahovah who appeared to him. So it's only three verses later where God says, and I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to your seed after you. And so right there is where Abram builds an altar to Yahovah himself. And now look what happens now. It's only three verses later once again. So Abram, he goes there. He's at Bethel is where he's at. We'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> But in verse 10, it says, and scarcity of food came to be in the land. So he's in the land of Israel, what we now know as Israel, and there's a famine. And because of the famine, Abram went down to Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, to dwell there. Why? For the scarcity of the food was severe in the land. You find that interesting. You might want to highlight that. We'll look at all this again in a second. You get to verse 13 on the next page. So now Abram thinks he's going to have a problem. Once again, every single time we human beings come up with a solution to a problem we think God has that he doesn't have, it doesn't turn out right. It never turned out right. So right now, watch this. Abram is how old? He's 75. Sarah, name hasn't changed yet, she's 65 years old. Keep this in perspective. And look what Abram tells her. Please say you are my sister, so it will be well with me for your sake and my life be spared because of you. Now, we already know, you should know, why did he tell her to do that? Because she was good looking. She was a sight to see. 
She was actually gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous. She's 65 years old. All of a sudden, Abram goes, okay, we got to get down in here because we're going to starve. They go down to Egypt, and then Abram goes, hmm, we're going to have a problem because when we go down there, if they find out you're my wife, they're going to kill me to get you. That's how good-looking she was. She was Abram's half-sister, so he's not just totally lying, just not telling the whole truth. The other fascinating thing, I, this just kind of popped in my head. The other fascinating thing here is I don't ever see, an, I don't see in Scripture where Sarah holds this against him. You don't find that, where she's chewing him out because this is what he did. She gets basically captured, pulled into Pharaoh's harem. What, let's continue to read. Verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her before Pharaoh. They, they see her and they're like, Pharaoh, you got to see this chick, man. She's hot. I'm pretty much that's what they said. They said, you're not going to believe it. This woman is drop-dead gorgeous. And so it says... And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. But it says, and he treated Abram well for her sake. So evidently, they say, yeah, she's my sister. Then all of a sudden, they just grab her and take her. But because they believe that she's just his sister, what do they do? They give him sheep and cattle and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. In other words, they give him a lot of livestock and servants and all kinds of stuff, kind of like a dowry, if you will, for Sarah because she was beautiful. And then verse 17, it says, But Yahovah plagued Pharaoh and his house, look at this, with great plagues. Why? Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Is this starting to sound a little familiar? If you think about the whole book of Exodus. We're going to map this out here in just a second. Then look what happens in verse 19. It says, why did you say she's my sister? And so I was going to take her for my wife. Look, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his, uh, with his wife and all that he had. So he didn't even take anything back. As a matter of fact, it's like they even gave him more. Because when you get down to chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And Abram went up from Egypt, Mitzrayim, into the south, he and his wife, and all that he had. And then it's noted, And Lot was with him. And Abram was very rich in livestock. And then it's added here, look at this, in silver and in gold. What did they leave Egypt with in the Exodus? All their herds and flocks, sheep, cattle, and all the spoils of Egypt, all the gold, silver, and the idols, jewelry. They plundered Egypt. Folks, it's happening, it's happening as a foreshadow right here with Abram. It's absolutely amazing. And then watch this. <clears throat> So they leave, and then in verse 3 it says, And they went on his, he went on his journey from the south as far as where? Back to Bethel. Do you know what Bethel means? Bet 
or Beth is house, house of El for Elohim. It's the house of God. So this city is literally called, it's the place or the house of God, Beth El, Beth El. So he starts at Beth El, Beth El, and he puts up an altar there to God. He goes into Egypt because he's there and because of his wife, a plague, a great plague comes on Pharaoh and his whole house. And then Pharaoh gets mad, kicks him out of Egypt with all the spoils of Egypt. And where does he go? He goes right back to Bethel where he met with God. God appears to him. He built an altar to him. It's exactly what happened with Moses. Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. God says, go down into Egypt, bring my people out and bring them back here to me. Abram meets with God, builds an altar on, in Bethel. He goes down into Egypt, a great plague. He comes out rich. Where does he go? He goes right back to Bethel. Did you find that amazing? Once again, there is nothing new in Scripture. It's repeated like over and over and over again. It will just open our eyes to see it. You'll see here in verse 4, because it says, to the place of the altar which he made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of God. It was there where he calls on the name of Yahovah, his God. And it makes mention here that Lot was with him. <clears throat> the one thing we don't see in this story is what was Lot doing when all of this stuff was going on and watching his uncle. And his uncle's actually doing something pretty dumb. Here's the interesting thing about Scripture. Scripture shows us people that were, some of them were godly, some were not. But even with all the godly people, it even shows us their flaws. In other words, all their warts, all their ugly all the dumb mistakes they make, all their lies, cheating, stealing, everything else. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It just shows you raw what they were like and what they were doing. Uh, <clears throat> God has already promised Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's called on God and built him an altar, uh, altar. He goes down into Egypt, and what does he do? God just told him, Leave your family, leave your land, leave your father's house, leave everything behind. On the route, his father dies, all that stuff. There in Haran, he, he dies. God calls Abram out, and uh, he's following him. That's a leap of faith, isn't it? I mean, is there anybody here in this room that could just kind of up and go? God says, gonna, I want you to go somewhere, but... I'm not going to give you a plan yet. I would have, I'm going to tell you, I would have a hard time with that. I've got some pretty deep roots, and it would just be difficult. Uh, he's 75. God says, this is what I want. And so he goes ahead and does it. I would say that's great faith, wouldn't you? Matter of fact, it talks about his faith, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. Right after he builds this altar, famine breaks out. We're going to starve. So he goes down to Egypt. First thing he does is, hey, you know what? We need to lie. Because if we don't lie, they're going to kill me. He doesn't even have a descendant yet. He doesn't have a child yet. He's 75 years old. He don't have a child yet. And God's promised him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he believes him. But then when he goes down there, what does he do? 
His faith is challenged by what? What he can see. And what he thinks might happen. Anybody here other than me get in trouble when you've done that? You see something and then you start making plans on how you're going to deal with this issue because you already know it's going to go whatever direction you've decided in your head. And I would be willing to wager that almost every one of us here could say, and it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> um, it seems like it, it never does, right? But when he was focusing on what he could see, uh, what he thought was going to happen, and what he thought God had a problem with, he comes up with a solution, and it wasn't God's solution. Some writers have said it just makes them wonder, what would have happened if Abram had gone down into Egypt and not lied? Well, we're never going to know, are we? But God knew that Abram was going to do that. Um, and it all actually fits right into his, his overall plan. So <clears throat> we find that... Uh, Lot is with him, and evidently Lot benefits from this. And why would I say that? Because when you, you keep traveling here in Genesis chapter 13, I don't have it here written down just yet, um, but in the verses from 5 to 10 uh, is where we see where Lot and Abram and their herdsmen start fighting over the resources because their flocks and their stuff has gotten so large. And they're fighting over the water and the resources. And Abram's attitude is, look, we don't need to be fighting. You know, we need to, we need to make room for one another. And so he tells Lot, where do you want to go? He goes, matter of fact, you make the choice and, I, and I'll be good with it. Which is interesting, right? This is the guy that just lied because his faith was tested and God brings him out. And I'm wondering, it's my opinion. I think that when that happened, <clears throat> I think Abram... He, I think his faith was actually strengthened because we're going to see him do some things that are absolutely incredible. Later on, he kind of still doubts God, but he asks, he's, I need you to give me a sign because, you know, I, don't, I still don't have an heir yet. Uh, we don't find uh, Abram really, really doubting that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He does it here with this issue uh, with his wife and her being so good looking. And so what we find here, matter of fact, if you would, I did it on my page, but while we march through here, you might want to do this. I put a line right here below verse 4, and I put an arrow going up, and I'm telling you, that's an exact picture of the Exodus. With Moses going down, he leaves Mount Sinai, he goes into the Exodus, <clears throat> or he goes down into Egypt, uh, the plagues break out, um, Pharaoh basically gives the command and kicks them out of Egypt. Abram and his wife and his family go down into Egypt. They have the plagues. And then Pharaoh, once again, an earlier one, kicks Abram out of Egypt with the spoils, if you will, of Egypt. This next section in Genesis 13, verses 1, 11 through 13, I think that's a depiction of the wilderness travels. Because watch what happens here. So Lot chose for himself the plain of the Yardan, or the Jordan. It's the Jordan Valley. And Lot moved east. Thus they separated from one another, Abram dwelling in the land of Canaan, or Canaan, 
and Lot dwelling in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were evil and sinned before Yahovah exceedingly so. What it describes prior to this is that this area was well watered, beautiful. It says it's watered like the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful. But what Lot saw were these cities. Man-made. And a chance to um, become a merchant probably and be successful. And so Lot goes down to Sodom. We know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So that's where he ends up going. Uh, And he goes down there, it seems, uh, because he saw all that. He saw that it was well watered and everything, and he saw the cities, and it says, and he goes. We know that he ends up in the city. So now he's not, uh, if you will, a, a shepherd. Now he's moved into the city like a merchant. And it's a wicked city. So he's made what? A really bad choice. He's decided to go down into the crowds and to be involved in something man-made. And Lot is now separated. And watch this. Now Lot is finally totally separated from what? The land, his father's house, and his relatives. Now it's just him and his wife and his belongings and the people uh, and his herd. And watch what happens now. This is like entering into the promised land. So this next section is like the people of Israel, when they go into into Egypt, they come out, then they end up in the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? While they're in the wilderness, those that were rebellious get separated from those that are trying to follow God, and they end up making it into the promised land. But while they're in the wilderness, those that were not, will not follow God, some, well, they die. Some die by the plague. Some die by the ground swallowing them. Uh, some die because uh, they complained and they ate so much that they get sick. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. They rebelled over and over. Uh, and then they, that whole generation ends up dying and separated from those that enter into the promised land. Now we get to Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. And it says, And after Lot separated from him, You see, there's nothing in your Bible by accident. It's saying this for a reason. After Lot separated from him, who left? Abram or Lot? Lot left. You see, when you choose to follow God and follow him explicitly, not everybody's going to go with you. As a matter of fact, if the whole crowd is following you, you might want to do a double check. Because if you're truly trying to follow God, there's a, according to Scripture, what you're going to find more times than not is that most people will not go with you. Most people want to stay emotionally uh, and mentally comfortable. They really don't want to follow God uh, when He asks everything of us. And so uh, Abram <clears throat> gives Lot the choice, and Lot decides, and he separates from him. And then look what this says. Yahovah says to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. 
For all the land which you see, I shall give it to you and your seed forever. What does that sound like? What was it he told to Moses? Now, Moses didn't get to go in, but he goes, Moses, I want you to look. This is all the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. You're not going to get to go in because of the rock. You didn't uphold me as holy. That's also, God knew about all that. It's all in his plan. But uh, now we've got Abram standing there. He goes, Abram, I want you to look north, south, east, and west. And all the land you see, I'm going to give to you and to your seed forever. Keeping, does, Abram doesn't have a child yet. He's in his 70s. He's alone now. Now he has no family except his immediate family. Everybody's left him. <clears throat> and God says, all of this I'm going to give to your seed after you. I think that's absolutely amazing. And then look what it says in verse 16. And I shall make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your seed also could be counted. Everybody understands that's a metaphor, right? I mean, he's saying, he's not saying that your seed will be the same number as the number of the grains of dust. He talks about later in passages about it like the grains of sand of the sea. And in a minute, we're going to see where he says the stars, if you can count them. He goes, that's how it's going to be with your seed, in other words. And then look what he says in verse 17. He says, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. He's not even saying I will. He goes, this is now yours. I'm giving it to you and to your seed. It's now yours. And he tells him, I want you to walk through it. You know what he's telling him to do right here? He's basically, th this is a land contract. Anybody ever buy property? More than an acre? Didn't you want to go out and walk it? It's like the first thing you want to do is like, I just need to walk it. I need to walk the perimeter. I need to... I need to go look at what God has given me. It's pretty cool, right? This is what God is telling Abram to do. He's like, this is now yours, and I want you to walk on it because I'm giving it to you, and I'm giving it to your seed after you. This is like them entering into the promised land. T turn the page. All of chapter 14 is the story <clears throat> that is an absolutely amazing story. Uh, I try to condense it for us so that we could go through this and have time to cover these chapters. Chapter 14 deals with a story of the area of Sodom and Gomorrah being overthrown by four kings. It talks about these four kings. They come up and they attack these five kings from the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are like city-states, okay, where these kings are in charge of this smaller area. By these four kings, which seem to be an attempt to recreate an international community, and Lot is captured. I'm going to show you why that why I believe that's true in just a second. So Lot is captured. These four kings come down. They attack these five kings from the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they capture Lot, and they take off. 
Um, then we see where Abram pursues them and attacks at night, catching them unaware and destroys them, delivering Lot and the others. This is all that's happening basically um, in, in chapter 14. It says, and I wrote down here, in Abram, after this uh, victory, and he does it with 318 men. He's got 318 men. And what do they do? They go and attack when? At night, when the people are unaware. And when that happens and there's a victory, watch what happens next. And I have condensed this for us. Abram is approached by two kings. One of them is a king slash priest, a high priest. One is from Sodom. The other, oh, and he offers him the spoils of war. He offers the spoils of war to Abram. This is the guy that just lied about his wife because he's scared. Comes out with a lot. And then his nephew, Lot, decides to go down to Sodom, and he's now alone with God, and God goes, look around, dude, because this is the land I'm giving you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Then all of a sudden, there's these four kings that arise. They attack the five kings where Lot is, and Abram doesn't hesitate. It says, a man comes, tells Abram, and this is where this first word is called, or where you see in Scripture, he's a Hebrew. It's ha-ibre, or eber. The word Hebrew basically means one who has crossed over. So Abram has crossed over and come out from his land and crossed over into this promised land, right? Right? So quite honestly, and I'm telling you, I've said this before, because we've been what, grafted into Israel, right? Whether you're natural born or not, when we're believers in Yeshua, we've been grafted in, Paul, Romans chapter 11. You cannot be a Gentile believer. It's an oxymoron. It, it, it's, it doesn't fit. To be Gentile means you are still of the nations and not part of God's people. So we have crossed over from our sinful life into faith with God, and we are also Eber, if you will. We have crossed over. We're no longer part of the nations in that system, right? We don't claim to be part of the nations in this ungodly system, I hope, right? I just shouldn't have to teach you guys this. If I ask you a question, you're supposed to respond, right? So we're not part of that, right? Which means we're part of God's family, So it says that he tells Abram, the Hebrew, Abram gets up, gets his men, and he goes to fight, and he catches them at night when they're unaware. From that, you have now two choices, Sodom and the king, and he goes, you know what? I want the people, but you can have the spoils of war. I want the captives that were supposed to be part of my people. They're my people. I want them back. But you can have the spoils of war. And Abram goes, oh, no, that's not happening. He allowed Pharaoh to make him rich. But now he's like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go there again. 
Listen, I'm not going to let it be said that you made me wealthy. The only thing we're going to keep, and he names off a few people, leaders, let them have their part in everything, but everything else you can have it. You can go ahead and take it back. Yeah, I, I don't want any of it. So he doesn't keep any of that. He just wants his family lot and his family to be released, which is what happens. Then the other one, and it's been said that this is one of the most mysterious encounters maybe in all of Scripture. You have this priest, Melech Zadik. It's a combination word. Melech is king. Uh, He's this holy, righteous king. He's also a high priest of the Most High God. And where does he come from? This area called Salem, Jerusalem. It's from this area right there around Jerusalem. And he's the priest of the Most High God. We don't know anything else about him. He shows up out of nowhere. He shows up and and meets Abram. What does he do? He blesses Abram. But look at what you... You'll have to go read the chapter He shows up to bless Abram, and what does he bring with him? Wine and bread. Who does that sound like? Yeah, Yeshua. As a matter of fact, a lot of people say that this is a pre-incarnate, which is a big word to mean before Jesus took on skin. Uh, It's a a picture of Yeshua uh, as our high priest, and this is why it's brought up in the book of Hebrews, talking about that Jesus is now in this priestly order in the order of Melchizedek. Um, And so he shows up and he blesses Abram and then Abram gives him a tithe, a tenth. So you have, now Abram is making a choice. I can either go with this sodomite king, literally no pun intended. I can go with this sodomite king And let him make me rich and let people say that that made me rich. Or I can go with this one that I don't know anything about him. He's coming out of nowhere. He's coming out of Jerusalem. And so what is this high priest bringing? Bread and wine. What did Jesus say? That he's what? He's the bread that came down into heaven, right? He broke bread. And he says, and this wine is a picture of my blood that is shed for you. And he does what? Blesses his disciples and blesses us. And then turns us into a blessing. Amazing, huh? And then Abram gives him a tithe. So instead of him becoming rich, he's giving this Melchizedek a blessing, if you will, a tithe. And he takes it. Now, why do I say that it seems like this is a, uh, uh, that they're trying to um, recreate an international community? You have to read your Bible in context. So I gave you a verse because you have to go backward to see what's going on in Genesis 11, 1 and 2. This is the Tower of Babel. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. So look at where they uh, settled. And all the earth had one language and one speech, and it came to be that they set out from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Shinar is the area of the Tower of Babel. 
Shinar is the area where the Tower of Babel event happened. God separates the king, separates the people into these people groups according to the number of the sons of God. And then he goes, but I'm going to create my own family out of this one guy called Abram. You guys can have everybody else, but I'm going to make another nation that's going to be my inheritance. Folks, it hasn't been that long since the Tower of Babel event. We're not talking thousands of years. You can't tell me that these people don't remember what happened and they haven't heard these stories and some of them even lived to see it. This is where we were and I think they're trying to reclaim it. So what they're trying to get back to this, watch this, one world government. And God goes, I don't think so because guess what? I'm going to take this little remnant and you're going to get attacked and defeated totally unaware. And I'm going to use my servant to do it. And then I'm going to have my Messiah show up. I think it's absolutely amazing. So uh, that's where I think that this is talking about <clears throat> this picture where you've got, they go down into the, they have the Exodus event. They have the wilderness event. They go into the promised land, and then what happens next after they've gone into the promised land? All this stuff goes on, but then what? The Messiah shows up. It's like God is painting this whole picture for us through this, this one story here about Abram. You get to chapter 15, and it says, And after these events, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your reward is exceedingly great. I think God could see Abram's heart. He knows that Abram is a man of great faith. He's exercised great faith. He wasn't fearful. He went down and killed these people. Four kings, four armies coalesced into one army. Abram's not a soldier. He's a shepherd that was a scared shepherd in Egypt and comes out, and now he's a warrior for crying out loud. And after all this happens, and, and, and now Abram's like, I don't want anything to do with Sodom. I want to be just me and God and whatever God wants for me. The Messiah shows up, if you will. A type of Messiah shows up, blesses him, brings bread and water. It's like the age of the Messiah, if you will, showing up and then blessing him. And then he says, and guess what? You're, you don't need to be afraid. Your reward's going to be great. Don't you know that your, your reward and my reward is much greater than we can even imagine today? Okay, I'm, I'm going to make you respond. I'm not going to do this all by myself. Um. Because I want you to see what Abram says to, to this. <clears throat> he goes, Abram says, but master, Yahweh, man, really? He's trusting God, but he's like, you keep telling me I'm going to be the father of many nations. I'm looking around. I'm not hearing any crying going on. I, we're not changing any diapers around here. Uh, I, I'm trusting you, but man, this is getting harder every day. Uh, he says, Master, Yehovah, what would you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? 
You know where Damascus is, right? It's up in where? It's up in Syria. So he's got Eliezer that's in his house. He's really a servant, a child of a servant in his house. He doesn't have any heirs. They didn't have social security back then. So you had to have children to take care of you when you're old. So he's like, he's going to inherit whatever I've got because he's going to be the one that's going to have to take I, This is what I got, God. I've got somebody from Damascus. He's not even from my body. How am I going to be? He's asking a very honest question. And Abram said, see, you've given me no seed. And see, one born in my house is my heir. And see, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this one is not your heir. Once again, Abram's still going, I'm going to try to find a solution to a problem that I think you have, God, because you're telling me I'm going to be the father of many nations. And in Texas slang, I ain't got nobody. This not, is this not adding up, God. And what you're telling me is not adding up. Uh, and he says, this one is not your heir, but he who comes from your own body is your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so are your seed, present tense. You have to remember, God is not limited by time and space. So God is not hoping this is going to happen. He's telling him, I know, Abram, you can't figure this out just yet, but this really has already happened. He goes, look up at the stars and count them if you can, because if you can count them, which I know you can't, that's how many are going to be your seed or that are your seed. It's this uh, age of Messiah as the seed of Abraham is uh, expanding through Yeshua, right? Because of our faith in Yeshua. And it says, and he believed in Yahovah and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. We're going to see this. You see this in the New Testament. And he said to him, I am Yahovah who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. Anybody ever hear a phrase similar to that? I am Yahovah who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and brought you into the promised land. He tells them that over and over and over again. Here he's telling it to Abram. Abram, I am Yahuwah that brought you up out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and I've brought you here to this day, to this place, to give you this land. It's the exact same phrase. <clears throat> when you get to verse 10 of this same chapter, it says, this is where God is now going to cut. It's called brit in, in Hebrew, where you cut something. Um, where you cut a covenant. Back then, you would cut a covenant. And the way you would do that is you would bring out animals. When people would get into agreement and they would sign something, and then there would be a feast. Part of that ceremony would be you take these animals, you cut them in half. You just lay them out, and you walk through it together. You walk through the pieces together. And the statement is, if I break this covenant, let happen to me what happened to these animals. You tracking with, that was common of what they would do, and that's why it was called that they would cut a covenant. Well, this is what God is now telling him, this is what I want you to do. So you pick up in verse 10, it says, and he took all these, and there were these 
uh, all these different animals and birds. <clears throat> he took all these to him and he cut them in the middle and placed each half opposite each other, but he didn't cut the birds, obviously, because they're small. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Adam and Abram drove them away. And it came to be when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram that see a frightening great darkness fell on him. In other words, he fell into this deep, if you will, trance and he's seeing this vision. And he said to Abram, know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. Now, it's at this point, now God is now gonna tell Abram, and now I'm gonna tell you the future. In other words, now I'm gonna give you the plan. Now I'm gonna lay out for you how this is all gonna transpire. Up to this point, he's just been walking by faith following God. God goes, I'm gonna take you to a place. He finally takes him to a place and he goes, okay, now you see where you are? He doesn't tell him, say, you're gonna go, you know, I'm gonna take it. He goes, go here, and he ends up in there in Canaan and he goes, gets up, get up on this mountain. He goes, look all around. So he's looking and he goes, okay, I'm seeing. He goes, this is what I'm giving you, your home. Wow. So then he goes through this whole thing. You know, how's this going to happen? Because I don't have a child. God goes, listen, trust me. This is your seed up at the stars. Look at all this. Now then, this is what I want you to do. So now he's going to make a covenant, right? He says in verse 13, this is where he's telling him, what's going to happen is your seed, they're going to be in a land that's not theirs. We know where that is, right? Right back in Egypt. Abram, when you went down there, that was a small picture of what is going to happen to them later. Now, those of us, those of you that have been here for a while know that what happened to them in the first Exodus is a small picture of what's about to happen globally in the future that we now know is called what some call the greater Exodus. It's about to happen. So he's like, here's a small picture. It's going to look like this. But even that's a small picture of what's going to look like this in the end because it's all cyclical. He goes, and they're going to serve them for 400 years. And he goes, but the nation whom they serve, I'm going to judge. And afterward, let them come out with great possessions. So he's saying, remember how that happened to you? They're going to go down there and they're going to come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you're going to go to your fathers in peace and you're going to be buried at a good old age. So just chill out, Abram. You're going to, this is how it's going to happen. So then you turn the page, verse 16. It says, then in the fourth generation, they shall return where? Here. It's like you started here, built an altar, left, came back here. Lot separates. You go to war. You come back. You're back here. Guess what, Abram? Your family's going to do these things. You're going to grow. You're going to die, yes, but your seed after you, they're going to go down into a land they don't know, and guess what? I'm going to bring them back here. Amazing, huh? And he goes, they're going to return here. He says, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, we mentioned this a long time back. But I believe that God's got this right here. Why? Because he's going to raise a nation that's going to be his nation. To do that, he protects them by sending them down into Egypt, even though they're going to be under hard labor, not the whole time. 
later while they're there. But while they're there, they're being protected. Why? Because the Amorites' wickedness isn't complete yet. I think it was the Amorites that would have annihilated and stopped God from accomplishing His plan. So He's like, to make sure you can grow up to be a, can I say it crudely, a sizable herd, a sizable number of people where you can protect yourself, I'm going to put you over here It's not going to be fun part of the time, but don't worry. Through that whole process, I'm going to make you so prosperous. I mean, your women are going to have a lot of kids, and I'm going to make sure you're not dying young, and y'all are going to grow into this mighty nation, and you're going to grow grow so strong that Pharaoh is going to think he has to call the herd, which is what we do today with abortion. It's just what's happening. Um... It's all planned out. But anyways, so he says, so that's what he's doing. And why is he doing it? Well, because the Amorites, their wickedness isn't complete yet, so I'm going to protect you. It's the same thing he's done for the last 2,000 years with us. Because Satan hates the Jew. Why does Satan hate the Jew? Because they are the main focal point of all of the prophecies in Scripture. Your whole Bible is talking about this prophecy. It's all the fulfillment of this prophecy, and it's the culmination of it at the very end. And if Satan can stop God from doing that, then he has a legal argument because, God, you're in a legal agreement. And if I can break that legal agreement, then I can say, you know what? You're not all that. You don't have a legal right to send me to hell forever. That's why anti-Semitism is of the devil. And I'm also seeing a lot of anti-Zionism flying around. You need to be very careful with that garbage. I'm just, I'm, I don't have time to dive off into it tonight, uh, but it is very, very dangerous ground. People want to claim, you know, who the real Israelites are, like we know, and we can prove that through history or whatever. And everybody's got total claims on how they can do that, and everybody else has got total claims from history on how they can do that. And I'm going to tell you something. The only one that really can do it is God himself. And the people that run around and say that they can do it without a shadow of a doubt, I'm telling you, that's not true. There's nobody in this room that really realizes whether or not you're an Ephraimite or not. God said He would scatter us to the four corners of the earth, and at the end of time, He'd bring us back. I think some of us here are. Maybe all of us. I don't know. But I know this, that when He does call us out, when that greater exodus happens, He will tell us who we are. And we will know. And you're not going to have to go take a DNA test to find out. And it doesn't matter. Right? We're told that in Scripture that not everybody that's born from Abraham is really Abraham's child. So you can have DNA lineage. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're really part of God's people. Like it even matters. But these people that are anti-Zionist, which means they're anti-Israel, the state of Israel, not anti-Jewish. So they'll say, well, I'm anti-Zionist, I'm not anti-Semitic. You can't separate the two. Because quite honestly, if you're anti-Zionist, I'm going to say it, you're anti-God's prophecies. It happened in 1948, and God said, I'm going to do this, and a nation's going to be born in a day. And these people that claim to be Christians, yet anti-Zionist, I go, do you not read your Bible? I know you're really smart, but are you just so smart you're stupid? 
Because the Bible says that this is exactly what would happen. And he said he would cause Jerusalem to become a cup of trembling. And then you got all this other garbage going on. And that's why Christians, and you'll find them even in politics and everything else, that will speak hastily against all these people in Israel, that they're just, all of this is of the devil. And that they're going to lead us into this world war. Well, guess what? That's exactly what's going to happen. Because God said this is exactly how it's going to happen. Does that jive with you at all? I mean, I, some of y'all are looking at me like a deer staring at the headlights. Um, anybody ever hear of the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitic? Well, you just got a very, very, very brief education on it. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Zionists. And I guess I'm all fired up because there's one in our city that wanted me to preview his writings, and I just didn't even want to go there because they're teaching it in the church. Yeah. This is what God prophesied is going to happen. And so then we're going to say, well, then it's not legit because they don't have the right DNA and I can show you where these people went and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, man, whatever. Might sell a lot of books and make you popular, but I'm not impressed. Sorry if that if is too offensive, but it just makes me angry. Um, so then... Um, this is what he says, and then, then look, I want you to see what happens. He says, this is what's going to happen because the Amorites, their, uh, their iniquity or whatever, it hasn't been completed. Then this is what happens in verse 17, which is fascinating. Because remember what I said, what happens when you cut a covenant? The parties that are part of the covenant walk through the pieces. Now you're going to see who walked through the pieces. Abram didn't. Verse 17, it came to be when the sun went down, it was dark to see a smoking oven and a burning torch passed between those pieces. Don't ask me to explain what the oven and the torch represent. Everybody's got a gazillion ideas, but everybody agrees that that's a representation of God. That that's what Abram saw in this vision of some kind of smoking oven and a flaming torch that walked through the pieces. Some will say it's a picture of God the Father and the Son, and on and on, and some talk that it's this burning fire because he's a, he's a flaming torch and a consuming fire. There's tons of things. I don't want to spend time diving into that because it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what does matter is that we everybody, uh, Jewish, Christian commentators alike, agree this was a representation of God walking through those pieces. And what we do know is that Abram didn't. So there's two people involved in the contract, right? God, Yahovah, and Abram. Abram is the one seeing the vision, and there's something walking through the pieces, but it's not Abram. So there's, it can, that even through common sense says it can only be one entity. That has to be Yahovah that's walking through the pieces because he told him, this is what I want you to do. We're, gonna make, we're making this covenant. And then look what it says in verse 18, because right here it says, On that same day, Yahovah made a covenant with Abram, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Mitzrayim, the river of Egypt, the Euphrates River, and on and on. And it, it's, it's actually this large area that's much larger than what you see in the present day land of Israel. Uh, so 
this covenant that was made with Abram, watch this. What has Abram done or brought to the table? Nothing. Up to this point, he hasn't brought anything. He's only walked where God told him to walk. He said, just leave. And he promised, when did he, when did he start making the promises? He started making the promises all the way back when he called him out to leave. Now he's just building on it, building on it, building on it. And then he says, and guess what? I'm going to make a covenant with you. But this covenant is so strong, it's based on me and my character and my name and nothing else. It's not even based on you, Abram. In other words, Abram, you can't do anything to break this covenant. Abram hasn't done anything yet. Abram's not called out to do anything other than to just trust God and walk with Him. This is where you jump into the New Testament. Actually, let me go ahead and tell you one other thing here uh, because there's chapter 16. Chapter 16 is that whole Hagar thing. Everybody know the story about Hagar? Because once again, now Abram and Sarai are old. He's like 100 years old, right? She's 90. These angels show up. Telling, Mo, telling Abram, look, you're going to have a child. It's been like 25 years. God likes to do the impossible, right? He just loves to do the impossible to prove that it, it's, it's him and nobody else can do this. It's been 25 years and it hadn't happened yet. Anybody here chase a dream or a calling that God put on your life and you're like, I'm just going and going and going and going. I'm still waiting for something to happen, and I'm going and going and going and waiting for something to happen. We just keep going and going and going because it's going to happen. It's, it, God is faithful. He, he, he is faithful. So it's been like 25 years. This is when Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be judged, right? You remember that story? Who's back in Sodom? Lot went back. After all he saw all the calamity, Abram coming and delivering him. And what does he do? He goes right back. He goes right back into the pit that he came out of, that he made the decision, this is where I want to go. And it cost him everything. It cost him dearly. Um, and then in chapter 16 is where these angels show up. God shows up. He says, I'm not even going to hide it from you, Abram, what I'm about to do. I'm going to go down here, and this is what I'm going to do. Before that happened, he says, you're going to have a child this time next year. Sarah overhears him in the, in the uh, uh, tent, and she laughs. So he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to name your child Yitzhak. Yitzhak, or Isaac, means laughter. Yeah. Why did your wife laugh? Oh, she didn't laugh. Oh, yes, she did. And guess what? You're going to have a child next year, and his name's going to be Isaac. You're going to name him Isaac. And what's really fascinating, it says that Abram, when they show up, Abram runs to prepare a meal for them because he realizes these are this is an angelic being. I'm being visited by God. This is supernatural. But what you don't realize, unless you read everything in context, the rite of circumcision had just been given to Abram and his family. 
He's 90. His son, um, Ishmael, is about 13. And they go through circumcision. Old school. It's been about three days. And they say, and if you go, when you look at the story of the Israelites and when Reuben and Issachar, is that right? Uh, they go down and they kill uh, the men from Shechem who dishonored their sister because they said the only way we can do this is if you circumcise everybody. And then they said, because we know that on the third day, the great fever, a great fever will have kicked in by then. And it's been about three days since Abram's been circumcised. And because it, we, we see a little element of truth in this because he's sitting out under the cool in the shade. He's trying to stay comfortable instead of out doing his business because he's been circumcised. And when they show up, it says Abram is now running around trying to get this meal prepared for them. He doesn't even care. Um, <clears throat> all of that is happening. And so then you have this Whole, these angels that show up uh, and they tell Abram, and then God tells Abram, I'm going to, this is what's going to happen down here uh, in this area. And because Abram still loves his family, this is why he's like, but what if there's 50 righteous down there? You're going to kill everybody? What if there's 40 righteous? You're still going to kill everybody? What if there's 20 righteous? You're still, he's like, God, you know, please don't kill me, but. What if there's 10? 10. And finally God goes, look, if there's 10, okay, I, I, won't, I won't do it. You know, he says, you need to leave me alone now. He leaves. The other two angels go on down. And it's on, the only people that get out are Lot. His wife sort of leaves. Uh, and he's trying to get his daughters and stuff out. And there's not even 10. And they have to get them out in a hurry. And we remember the story about his wife turning around. And then the fire comes down and consumes everything. And everybody. That's the story of what's, what, what happens, and we'll, we'll get there in a second. But then when, I want to jump into Galatians because here's why reading and understanding this story now chronologically and in context becomes very important because now listen to what Paul says. Because Paul was going around preaching the gospel about Jesus, about Yeshua, that he came and died on the cross so that now we can have salvation in God, through faith in Yeshua. What was happening was there were people that were Jewish believers, but they believed you had to convert to Judaism and become circumcised before you could get saved. It was a prerequisite for salvation to them. Peter and Paul are like, have you lost your mind? No. And that stuff never saved anybody. And so they were going around harassing the believers that were Gentiles or actually part of the dispersed 10 northern tribes. We've been over that. Uh, and they're coming to faith by the thousands. And then you have these, what they call, these are what they call the Judaizers or 
Paul will refer to them as the circumcision party. They were this group of Pharisees that were believing in Yeshua, but they were like, but you know, hey, you can't be speaking about against our traditions and you really got to become Jewish because only the, watch this, only the Jews get saved because this is a Jewish thing. You, you following that? And so there were people already pushing that and harassing the apostles that were going around teaching, no, it's salvation by faith. They were leading people to faith. And then you get to this passage in Galatians that people say, yeah, but Paul. Yeah, but Paul says this. It's just amazing because we just refuse to read our Bibles in, in context. So then Paul is trying to explain this to these believers in Galatia that once were following pagan practices, then they come to belief in Yeshua. They start trying to practice the Torah. The Judaizers come behind them and say, no, that's not how this works. You got to get converted back. They start getting confused. They start to go back to their pagan practices because they're like, ah. anybody ever get confused by people in the church? It started immediately. They're coming around going, yeah, 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 that, that Jesus stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you got to be Jewish first. You got to get circumcised. Your salvation isn't legit. That's what they were telling them. I know you think you're saved, but you're really not. That's what they were telling them. And you got to get converted to Judaism first. You got to go through our school. You got to get all our stuff. You got to get circumcised. I know this doesn't sound like fun, but that's what you got to do. Then we'll talk about salvation. So they get confused. They start to go back to their pagan worldly practices. Look what he says in Galatians 3, starting with verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when Abraham was, and he's going to, let's just go ahead and read the rest of this because it just says it. So you jump down to verse 15. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. What did Abram do? He had a covenant with God and it can't be annulled or changed once it's been ratified. It was ratified when God walked through the pieces. Done. It's not changeable. Not changeable. The covenant was, I'm going to do this with you and your seed, and I'm going to give them all of this land. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be a light to the nations. I'm even, he's even going to send his Messiah through these people. Look what he says in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. He's talking about the Messiah. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. The law hadn't been given yet when God made this covenant and, and all these promises to Abraham. When did it come? 
430 years later. Longer than we've been a nation. It does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What is he telling them? He's like, look, you can't get saved by the law, and the law was never meant to save anybody. Why did it come? He's saying here in a short form, because of iniquity. Because there was iniquity, the law came. Why? Because at that point, God himself was going to what? Tabernacle with his people. He would have a house, the tent, the tabernacle. It becomes eventually the temple that Solomon builds in Jerusalem. And he dwells there in all of his holiness. We've been over this. But the law was given in the sacrificial system so that when you came into God's house, you didn't bring your garbage in the house. Because if you did, you would die. And God didn't want anybody to die. So there was this buffer system to keep us from being killed while there was a temple there and God dwelling with us. That's why he gave all of the law. That is why now we can only keep part of it but we can keep it, guard it as authoritative in our lives, and we can only do what we can do apart from being in the land without a temple and a sacrificial system. Make sense? And so he's saying, Paul is making it very clear because Paul understood this. He goes, look, no one got saved by the law. As a matter of fact, Abraham was given the promise before the law. He was a man of faith, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. The law never saved anyone. And we got these guys running around saying, no, you got to do this or you're not really saved. Does that sound eerily familiar in the current culture we live in? This is why, folks, you and I shouldn't really be thinking, well, you know what, they're not doing such and such, they're probably not saved. You don't know a person's heart and you don't know their relationship with God. That's where it says, judge not. If somebody is in our midst, they claim to be walking with God and they're doing stuff that we know from Scripture is sin, our job is to call them out and say, hey, look, brother, I love you, but this is what the Bible says. You're not supposed to be doing that. If you keep cheating on your wife, I'm going to slap you silly. That kind of thing, right? That's what I'm talking about. Something that's obvious. When Scripture says this is wrong, you don't lie, cheat, steal, get involved in sexual promiscuity, on and on and on. Those things are wrong. You don't do those things. That's where he says you are to judge that, but you don't judge someone's salvation. That's between them and God. So this is why this stuff here and reading this in context makes, helps you understand what was really going on and so that you can understand the covenants and the promises that were given to Abraham and he's the father of our faith, right? Clear but you don't get saved by what you do. I'm going to go ahead and close this <clears throat> with Genesis 17. 
This is where he says, and it came to be when Abram was 99 years old that Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God, the most powerful one. Walk before me and be perfect. And I give my covenant between me and you and shall greatly increase you. And Abram fell on his face and Elohim spoke with him saying, as for me, look, my covenant is with you and you shall become the father, a father of many nations. And no longer is your name to be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham because I shall make you the father of many nations. So right here, he's going to change his name to Abraham. He still doesn't have a child yet. A legitimate child. Isaac hasn't been born yet. And he goes, right now, I'm changing your name from this, from Abram to Abraham, which means the, uh, the father of many. So he's 99 years old. He goes to his family and he goes, just changed, God just changed my name. He's 99 years old. He's got a child by his wife's handmaid servant. So she, this child is only sort of legitimate because it's not with his wife. He still doesn't have Isaac yet. And he walks in and he goes, now you're going to start calling me the father of many nations. That's my name. Amazing, huh? Um, at the start of your uh, notes, you'll see where some of the verses, and I didn't go into them because it just would have taken too long. It's found in Romans chapter 4. I want to challenge you to go and read that. Um, but in Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> uh, especially verses 9 through 11, this is where Paul deals specifically with circumcision and when Abram was circumcised and that the circumcision didn't have anything to do with Abram getting the covenant, it was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of his relationship with God. God made the covenant. God made the promises. God said, this is it. This is done. You, these are your children. This is going to be your seed. This is your land right now. You are now called the father of many nations. Now I want you to do something. Now I want you to do something. I want you to circumcise your foreskin as a sign that this will be a permanent sign between me and you and your children. Watch this. That all your reproductive possibilities are linked to me. That's what it was about. You don't get anything on your own. And all of your blessings, I want you to remember that all of your blessings are always coming from me. And this is a sign between me and you and all of your male offspring that I want you to always remember that everything that you have is connected to me. Everything you should have is connected to me. So here we've got this incredible picture. Did you see this? Absolutely beautiful, incredible picture. God goes, well, guess what? I'm going to take one man, and he's going to go down to Egypt. He's going to have this encounter, and I'm going to bring him out. And this is how it's going to happen. And guess what? Then later, I'm going to explain to him that basically what happened to him on a small scale is going to happen to his whole nation when I birth them as a nation, when I bring them up out of that land. And then Paul tells us all that stuff that was written in the Old Testament 
was written for our instruction and as an example to us, because God says at the end of time, they're no longer going to say, as the Lord lives, it brought up the people out of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, it brought up His people out of the four corners of the world where He scattered them. Meaning it won't even come to our memory. So He's saying, I did it once with one person. I'm going to do the same thing with a nation. And then I'm going to do the same thing with my regathered people on a global scale. You see that cycle? I think it's absolutely amazing. And then that cycle of what we saw happen also includes the Messiah. So then you got this whole picture of us being scattered. You got the Messiah coming and he goes, look, I don't want you to be scared. It's all going to be fine. Don't be fearful. Just walk before me and be perfect. Just walk with me. Just do what I ask you to do. Walk with me. Have faith in me. I got this. Your God has got this. He loves you so much, so much. He's proven himself over and over and over again. And what just makes me nuts is when we take a passage like this and we pull it apart and pull all these little ditty passages out of here, and then you hear these sermon sound bites that are so disconnected, and you'll see sermons and stories and stuff and commentaries on and on and on. Well, you see, what God is really teaching you here is that God is going to put a call on your life, and you just need to go no matter what. Well, yeah, partly. <laughs> uh, that's, I guess, true on a personal scale, but at the same time, you better make sure it lines up with Scripture and you're not following the inclination of your own heart because watch what happens. Abram got to the point where he's like, I tell you what, I'm not even going to make this decision. I went down here with Sarah and I concocted a scheme that was bad. I watched my own wife get hauled off into Pharaoh's harem. And then he probably went, that didn't turn out right. Kind of like the modern version of here, hold my beer, you know. Seriously, he's like, yeah, th this will work. And all of a sudden, oh, I didn't expect that, you know. Uh, and then they get kicked out. He's like, okay, great, great, great. In other words, God bails him out. And you can just imagine him going, whoo, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again right? So he doesn't. And he goes, you know what, Lot? This time you decide. I'm not making a decision. You decide. What does Lot do? Lot goes down there to Sodom. He even gets bailed out and goes back. Abram's like, no, I just want to be with God. The whole Hagar thing. Sarai goes, I need a child. I need a child. And Abram's like, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, for crying out loud, you know? She goes, take Hagar. Maybe this is how God's going to do it. Abram goes, if that's what you really want, okay. So then he has a child. What does it do? Makes Sarai mad. That worked out really good for him again, didn't it? Then she gets mad at Hagar. Hagar's looking at me funny. Well, she's your handmaid. Do what you want. So then she starts treating Hagar bad. Hagar runs off. God shows up and says, listen, I know you got a child. Don't worry. You need to go back. Just be submissive. I'm going to bless the child it'll be all right. And he even blesses the child, Ishmael. Where do you think all the Arabs came from? Once again, 
we trying to solve a problem that we think God has when He doesn't have a problem. And we come up with a solution that isn't a solution. It's another problem. But God is still loving, and He goes, I'm still going to bless. He's not willing that any should perish, but all, all, that everyone would come to faith in, the, in His Son that He sent 2,000 years ago. And so here we are today waiting on that next temple to get built, sacrifices to get started, and uh, waiting for our orders. Now we know what to look for. Now we know what to expect. And it won't, be any, it won't catch us by surprise. Isn't that cool? I think it's awesome. God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. Take care of everything. And, and, and what's really cool? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. But you should want to do everything. God loves you so much. I'm going to offer you salvation. It's your choice to walk with me or not walk with me. If you don't want to, that's your choice. And that's why Yeshua said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll want to do what I, what I tell you to do. If you love me, you'll want to honor me. If you love me, you'll want to, people to know that you're mine. If you love me, you won't want to take your light and hide it under a bushel. You're going to want to let it shine so people can see your good actions and glorify your God in heaven. It doesn't say so that people can see your church attendance and glorify some God made up in whatever name. It says so that they can see what we're doing and how we're living and glorify our Heavenly Father. He loves you so much.